Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Okay, I want you to imagine with me that the stage behind me is full from front to back and top to bottom with boxes. And down the middle, there's, a, there's, a, there's like a gangway. There's red boxes on the left-hand side, blue boxes on the right-hand side. Absolutely chock-a-block full. And inside those boxes are bottles. And inside those bottles are pills. Two different pills. One in the, in the, the white box. Did I say white? Red, thank you. Red and white, was it? Blue, bless you. Amen. You see, you, see, you see what I need? Amen. Amen. Let's do this together. Red and blue. In the red boxes is a cure for AIDS. In the blue boxes is a cure for cancer. Now, if that were, I want you to imagine for a fact, if that was literally the case and, and they, were, they were full of those pills, they were guaranteed that these, these pills would cure both AIDS and cancer, what would your response be to that? I'm hoping that some of you wouldn't even let me continue on talking, that you'd be rushing past me, you'd be ripping open the boxes as you think about those maybe that you know who are suffering with some of these diseases. And then maybe you'll think about others who may be in hospitals who need those. Could it be, though, that some would maybe just sit down? Some would may even leave here not taking any of them. What would you do? Well, God is the cure for sin and death. And his name is Jesus. So let's find out what God wants us to do about that. We're going to be reading today um, from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. I'll read it and then we're going to have a look at some context. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Matthew 28, this chapter is an amazing chapter. I mean, every chapter in the Bible is amazing. But just the... There's such um, depth and wealth has already gone on, and we're kind of jumping at the end, obviously at the end of this chapter, right at the end of the gospel. So we need to get a little bit of context. Chapter 27 finishes with uh, Jesus, who has proved to all by fulfilling prophecy, by signs and wonders that he performed, that he's the Messiah, that is the Anointed of God, the one sent to save mankind from their sins. The only problem is, in chapter 27, he's dead. An innocent man, accused of blasphemy, which is to make yourself equal with God. He's been brutally tortured, stripped naked, and nailed to a wooden cross, where he was left to die the most shameful and painful death. He's then buried in a tomb with a huge stone rolled in front of it, 
and Roman soldiers assigned to guard it. Now here in chapter 28, three days after Jesus' death, two of his female followers visit the tomb where Jesus was buried. You see that in uh, verse 1, the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and, 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 and the other Mary, um, mother of Joseph. Actually, before we, let's have a look at, um, sorry, verse, verse 2. But before, before we do that, let's, let's try and imagine how these women must be feeling. They'd listened to Jesus teach, watched him do miracles, sat at his feet. Mary Magdalene had been set free from seven demons. It said she was possessed. This woman's life was an absolute nightmare. And Jesus had set her free from that in the same way that there's a lot of reverb coming. In the same way that he set many of us free. Both of them loved and followed him only to see him crucified before their eyes. They would have been absolutely shell-shocked and devastated. But then, verse 2, and I've written down, wow, because it is wow. and says, behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. I, was, I think this is a Jamaican angel. Because he's, 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 he's rolled back the stone and sat on it. Rolled back the stone and sat on it. This is amazing. Imagine how they must be feeling now. There's an earthquake. That, that is enough to, to terrify you. But not only that, now they see an angel, an angel of the Lord descending from heaven. And remember, this is not a Hollywood production or some myth or fable. This is historical fact. This is the biblical account of what took place. Now, who would have loved to see an angel descend? Who would love to see an angel descend now? And people talk about that. We would, you know what I mean? And yet, it says, I think it's in verse 5, it says that their appearance was like lightning. And we, we, here we, you know, we see little bits of lightning here and there. We went to Jamaica recently, and the lightning in the Caribbean is just different. I mean, it, you see a whole streak of lightning from top to bottom to the floor. And in one sense, it's bright and it's brilliant. But at the same time, it's kind of, it's scary. And this was what, what their, their appearance is, is likened to, that of lightning. This is an awesome thing that's happened. And in verse 5, it seems like that they've, you know, the angels have got a sense of humor. They say, don't be afraid. I mean, it really is. If, I don't know about you, but if I, I was thinking about this, if I'm walking down the road and somebody jumps behind a car, I freak out. And, and that would be scary enough for me, let alone an angel descending from heaven. Then verse 6, amazing. He's not here, the angel said. This is Jesus, he's not here. Now, Panache is here with us today, and he's got a, a... Well, I first heard the saying from him, other people say it, but the saying is, it's gone. I mean, when something's good or something's amazing, it's, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. And Jesus is gone, he's missing. So Jesus has performed the greatest disappearing act ever, only it wasn't an act. Now, I'm sure we've all seen the footage of David Blaine, uh, the magician and trickster, a little while back, he was, you know, lots of people watch, watching this guy, you know. I think the uh, first thing I saw him do was he throw a card up against the window from, from outside and people would be on the inside and then all of a sudden you'd see the card was somehow miraculously on the inside. And then it, but his famous trick, who remembers what his famous trick was? What was the one he's most known for? Levitating. Levitating. I'm not being funny. If, if you tell me you can levitate, stand right in front of my face and levitate. Don't go off. He goes off and then he does the, the, the levitating thing. Interesting. I looked on, um, and for, for a little while, you, you see people responding in, in a just like they're blown away. 
And yet we, we see here in the scriptures things that are, that are truly amazing, truly awesome, truly miraculous, that really did happen. There's no trickery that's gone on. And we need to be careful that when we approach the scriptures and we read these, you're not just, don't just read over it like, okay, well, that, you know, I probably, it's probably not, didn't really, probably wasn't really an angel, probably didn't really descend. Jesus probably didn't really raise from the dead. He has risen. Three of the most amazing words in the Bible. Glorious words. Verse 7 says, go quickly and tell his disciples. This is what they said to him. Why? Because without the resurrection, they've put their faith in a great man who died, not a divine saviour who is alive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, to paraphrase, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, preaching, you're wasting your time. Christians, you're wasting your time. We're here today, this morning, wasting our time if there was no resurrection. But there was a resurrection, and, and that is proof of God's divinity, proof of that Christ was the one who he claimed to be, who scripture said that he was. Verse 9, the two Marys bow down and worship. Another sign, of their, as far as they're concerned, this is, this is God. Verse 11 to 15, you've got the religious um, leaders, far from crying out to God in repentance, they're still up to their evil trickery, still unchanged. They bribed the guards who were outside Jesus' tomb to spread their evil lies about Jesus' body being stolen in order to stop people believing in him. Even when staring the evidence in the face, they're committed to unbelief. I don't know if you've heard the story about the man who was convinced that he was dead. His friends tried everything they could to convince him that he was actually alive. One day they took him to a psychiatrist who, after examining him, concluded, yes, he is definitely convinced that he's dead. It's true. And so as the, the psychiatrist scratches his head, he gets a brainwave, and he says to the man, do dead men bleed? And the guy thinks about it for a second and says, no, definitely. they don't have a heartbeat, there's, there's no blood pumping, no, they definitely don't bleed. So he takes a pin and pricks the man's finger, and then obviously blood comes out. So astonished at this irrefutable evidence that he is in fact alive, the man remarks, well, would you believe it? Dead men do bleed. <laughs> they are like, they're like some, like, there are likely some people like that here today. You've heard about Jesus. You've been told about all the evidence for his life, the fact that he was sinless, that there are over 300 prophecies already been fulfilled about him, that he was crucified, shedding his innocent blood to pay for your sins, that there's only one way to be saved, and that's to repent of your sins and to trust in him alone as your Lord and Savior. You've heard these things maybe over and over again, but you still won't believe. Well, I've been praying this week that God would open the eyes of your heart, not knowing who would be, be here, but obviously the Lord knows who, who, who is here, and he knows the condition of our heart. And realizing that without the Lord doing this, without the Lord revealing to you how awesome he is, without the Lord revealing to you how much we're in need of him, how desperate we are for him, the reality is our hearts are cold. Let's look at verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Now, on at least three occasions, Matthew records Jesus' promise to meet his disciples. Jesus didn't talk and miss. He didn't talk and say, so say he's going to do something and he's not going to do it. And this was obviously a prearranged thing that was going to happen. Um, it doesn't say where, where it was. It could have been the Mount of Transfiguration. There's much debate about what mount it was. It's not, I don't think it's really that important. What's important is that he told them he was going to do something. He did it. So in 26.32 he says, but after I'm raised, 
raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And also, as we saw there, the angel said, look, he's going to go before you. He's gone before you to Galilee. Then again, in verse 10, he says, tell my brothers to meet me there in Galilee. The disciples have obediently left Jerusalem and traveled some 70 miles to Galilee, which is a cent- was, was the central place of Jesus' ministry. Remember, that's where he began his ministry and where much of his ministry took place was, was, in, um, was in Galilee. So Matthew mentions that there are 11 disciples. Now, we know that Judas was one of those disciples initially. He was one of, he was one of the 12. And Judas betrayed him. Judas wasn't a genuine disciple. Judas turned his back on Christ. Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And then not being able to live with himself, he, he hung himself. And that's back in chapter 27. Peter's been restored after his denial of Jesus back in chapter 26. And this is encouraging for us. Because Matthew 10.33 says, But whoever denies me before men, I will deny my, before my Father who is in heaven. It's a shameful thing to deny Christ. For any of us to, to deny the one that has, has laid down his life for us. To, to deny the one that has given us life. To deny God. It's a shameful thing. The one that we should have, have most allegiance to. Our first allegiance should be to him. It's a shameful thing to do that. But if we're honest, probably most of us, if not all of us, at, at times have done it. We've been in a situation where we've been ashamed of Christ. But we can take courage in the fact that we look at Peter and we see that, you know what, God is merciful. Peter's not struck off. Jesus said to him, didn't he, in Matthew 26, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Jesus is like, never, Lord, not me. The others might do, I mean, but not me. I'm not going to do it. And we've all felt like that, haven't we? But the reality is sometimes we do deny Christ. But what was his attitude afterwards? It said he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. And that's the, the attitude of any true believer, isn't it? And so there may be times where you find yourself denying Christ. But what's your attitude towards it afterwards? Can you just brush that off? If you're a true, genuine believer, you're, you're going to be sorrow, sorrowful. You're going to be repentant. Verse 17 reads, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now the only appropriate response to seeing Jesus, who has risen from the dead, proving his authority and his divinity, is to hit the deck in worship. That was the response of Mary back in verse 9, and that's the response of the disciples here in verse 17. So there's no surprise there. But what, it, what might be a surprise is it says, Some doubted. Now, it's important to note that this word doubt doesn't mean unbelief. doesn't mean because they're, they're clearly here. They've, they, they've done what they've, they've arrived to, to see Jesus. So it's not unbelief. But it's the same word used by Jesus of Peter back in when he, um, Jesus comes to the disciples walking on the water. And he calls Peter to himself. Peter steps out of the boat and, and begins to walk on the water. Then he realizes, boy, I'm on the sea walking on the water. What's going on? What, what am I doing? And he, and he begins to, to sink. And Jesus says to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And that's our word here. It speaks of hesitation and indecision. And you think it, I think it fits the context back in Matthew as the disciples have been on an emotional roller coaster, haven't they? The saviour, the, 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 the person they put all their trust and their hope in. in many, and we know that, that the, in their minds, they're expecting what, what's going to happen at his second coming. They're expecting him to take over and to rule and to reign at that time. They didn't want him to, to go to the cross. They didn't want him to die. They didn't want him to suffer. And yet he was continually talking to them about the fact this is what's going to happen. And yet they didn't understand and they didn't want it. So this mix of worship and hesitation is common to all believers, isn't it? We don't, none of us has a perfect faith. I mean, there are times where we believe and yet we have to say, Lord, help my unbelief. Because 
I want to believe that the, the, the desire is there, and yet, and yet there are times where we struggle to believe. So I want to make three points that come straight from the text. And the first is, quite simply, that Jesus has all authority. That's taken from verse 18. Jesus has all authority. So Jesus seeks to bring assurance in verse 18 with an absolutely outstanding claim. Let's read it. Noses in your Bibles, please. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus steps to the, to the disciples. He might have been more than a bit worried about how he would respond to them. Remember, they, they flopped, didn't they? Garden of Gethsemane, they're supposed to be praying. They couldn't stay up for an hour. They flopped. Peter's denied him three times. They've ducked out for fear of persecution for themselves. They flopped, as we flop, as we, as we mess up. And yet, how does, how's Jesus going to deal with them now? He affirms his authority, not for the first time, because back in chapter 9, he said that he had authority to forgive sins. That's a big claim. It's one thing for me to say, okay, I forgive you for sinning me, but for me to say, yeah, all the sins that you've done, I can forgive you for that. Only God can do that. And that's the claim that, that Jesus made. He said, I have authority to forgive sins. So, so Matthew's really been building this picture that, you know, what Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king. He has all authority. We're, we're right at the, the crux of it now in the last chapter to, to where, we, where, where we hear Jesus say it from his own lips. All authority has been given to me. Just imagine what it would be like for his disciples to be standing in front of the risen Lord Jesus. They'd heard him tell them over and over again exactly what would happen to him. Then with their own eyes, they witness it. His arrest, scourging, crucifixion and burial. To hear him now with their own ears say, all authority has been given to me. By the way, that word all, who can guess what it means in the Greek? All right. Oh, you guys are too good. It means all. That's right. <laughs> I was really excited about that. That was, that was the climax of my whole message. <laughs> there was, yeah, it means all, everything, nothing missing. And the dictionary, dictionary definition of authority is the power or right to enforce obedience. All parents say, yes, amen. The power or right to enforce obedience. That's, that's authority. Now imagine you're driving along the motorway at 90 miles an hour in a slow lane. Car pulls alongside you, tells you to pull over. What do you do? Nighttime. Well, let's change the, change the situation. It's not a car now, it's an ice cream van. Obviously a souped up ice cream van because you're doing 90 miles an hour. The, the music's playing and to east, the guy's with an ice cream, he's saying, pull over. What do you do? What if it's a police car, the sirens are going, you get the same, the nod and the serious finger to pull over. Well, imagine if God pulled alongside you in a flaming chariot and with a voice like thunder said, pull over. <laughs> I suppose your answer in each of these scenarios would depend on how much authority each person has and also whether you respect that authority or not. Well, the most powerful people on the planet, the queen, my wife, they... <laughs> Don't be fooled, you know. Don't be fooled, don't be fooled, don't be fooled. Hey, it's, I made up for it. David Cameron and Nick Clegg, Idi Amin, Barack Obama, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the banking families, very, very rich billionaires. Name anyone, they're all subject to Jesus Christ. Along with all wildlife and all of creation. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus stands up on a boat after being woken up by his disciples who are terrified in a storm. On a, on the, in the Sea of Galilee, he stands up on the boat. He doesn't shout and scream, and he, say, he says to the wind and to the waves, he says, be still. 
and there's immediate calm. And they say, they respond, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They, they were up close in person with Jesus and yet they didn't really know and understand who he was. And that's the same for us today, isn't it? And I really, one of my, my, my prayers has been, it's continuing to be, God, really, Lord, would you open my eyes to who you are? Would you break my heart for what, it, for what you've, you've done for me? Because the reality is, I, I read your scripture and it kind of bounces off. It doesn't, it doesn't have the effect that it should do. And I know that because it, it, that there's, there's not that, that desperate drive in my life like there would have been for you clambering for those pills, knowing that, that, that this is potentially is going to be life-saving. That's my desire. More and more, that's my desire. But I realize that the Lord is the one who's going to, who has to open my heart because my heart is hard. Who alone can have authority in heaven and on earth? God alone. Here we have another point to the fact that Jesus is God. And yet he still remains subject to the Father. This is amazes me. You've got, the, you've got the, the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet there's submission within that without there being inequality. So Jesus is submitted to the Father. And yet it doesn't make him less than. It's, it's mind-boggling, as, as the Trinity is mind-boggling. But, but isn't that an example for us to follow, that, we, that, we're, that we're to be submissive of authority? In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then in Philipp- Philippians 2, 6-9, it says of Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, And coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, what's the result of that? God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. There's nobody as humble as Jesus. Jesus is God, and yet he humbled himself to be born of one of his own creation to live a perfect life. He left, he left the throne of heaven. He left his father's side to come. It, it, it's mind-boggling. I was, I was trying to think about a, a, an illustration. I know Rob gave one about a cockroach, but I suppose the best I could do was that in some way, and this doesn't even really, really cut it, but it would be, be like us being in the garden and seeing a slug. I mean, all this, my, my wife hates slugs. Seeing a, a slug and this trail of slime and, you, and you're looking at that, tra- that, that slug and you're going, you know what, I, I love that slug. Not only that, I love all slugs. And I don't, it's not my desire that, that, that any of them should perish forever. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make myself into, into a slug. I'm going to be born of, of a slug and, and then I'm going to die as a slug in order that, that, they could, that they could be saved. And that doesn't even really cut it. Jesus is the, the humblest man ever. It may not seem to us that Jesus has authority when you look around at all the evil in the world. Yeah, we just come back from um, sorry, come back from Cornwall, where we had an amazing time. And Mar- is Moraine in here? She's not in here. Mar- she's upstairs. Okay, Moraine has got, um, got two beautiful children, which I'd seen about, but going away, I just really began to get to know them, and they're amazing, Caius and Kezia. And I went with Ke- with Caius, just me and Caius in the car. We've gone gone to the beach one day, and. He's very, you know, he's six years old, going on 46, talking about the, the, the things of God. He's very mature, um, and he started talking about God. And I, and I, I not, not made a mistake, but I, I mentioned to him, I said, you know, that God created the devil. And he looked at me like, 
it was going to get out of the car, and I thought, oh, okay, how am I, I going to explain this one now? And, it, and, and then he said, um, why doesn't God just kill the devil? But isn't that, we can have that same mindset, can't we? I'm sure we've often thought that, Lord, why don't you just destroy this brother? I mean, then there'd be no more sin, there'd be no more death, there'd be no, there'd be no more pain. And yet we know that that's, that is what's going to happen. And even as we were singing earlier, that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to f- confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. He has all authority. Ought we not to submit to that authority? And I was thinking about this, thinking about the fact that obedience almost has become like a dirty word nowadays. To be obedient, you know, it's even taken out of, of the vows, isn't it? Most, you know, most women, particularly those who, who are not Christian, they don't, they don't want to confess that they're going to be obedient to their husbands. Children don't want to be None of us really want to be obedient. We, we want to rebel against authority. But we must not do that with God. God has all authority. Christ has all authority. And as believers, we must submit to that authority. And we need to hear that. I mean, just simply on the fact that he has all authority. For that alone, I, must, I need to submit to him. So we can take courage from the fact that Jesus has authority over every aspect of our lives. He's overcome every enemy, including sin and death. Even though our faith is imperfect, the object of our faith is not. Let us remind ourselves of the amazing fact that Jesus is in control. Let us also worship him with our lives in humble obedience. We also need to walk in the power of that authority, which brings me to my next point. We must make disciples of all nations. And we get that from verse 19, which reads, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice the therefore, which connects this verse with the previous one. So because Jesus has all authority, the disciples are empowered to make disciples. And that's really what we're talking about about today. the, The imperative here of, this, of this, this whole message, imperative here in these verses, is to make disciples. And it's something that we're all, as disciples of Christ, called to do. It's not just for pastors, it's not just for evangelists, it's for all of us, every member of, 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 of the church. We're all, all part of, part of um, Christ's body. We all have a role and a duty to make disciples. But not only that, it's a privilege that we can do that, and that we can, that we can join, in, join in Christ in this great call. So, the imperative here, as I said, is, is to make disciples. Now, the word disciple means learner or pupil. It's someone who follows another. Back in chapter 4, we see uh, Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, and he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. And really, that's, that's, that's what is the Christian, Christian life? Following Jesus, being obedient, obediently following him, being in relationship with him. If we would just do that, it sounds simple, and yet... I'm sure we we all know that we struggle to follow him as we should. So you just follow me and I'll make make you what you cannot be yourself. That's what Jesus says. Verse 20 of chapter 4 says, Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Amazing. Such faith. They just dropped everything. They weren't just out having a day's fishing. like We did some fishing recently. It was just just for, for leisure. This was their, their, their business, their trade. They, they dropped it all immediately and followed Jesus. So they obeyed Jesus' commands. That's what disciples do. They follow Jesus obediently. And unlike Judas, they keep following Jesus. They continue on. Judas started out, didn't he? But then he veered off. He didn't, he didn't continue on because he wasn't a true disciple. 
In chapter 10 of Matthew, Jesus commanded his disciples to preach the gospel, remember, only to the Jews, who were the lost sheep of Israel. But now there's to be no restriction on the gospel. It's to be preached to all people everywhere. And in Acts 1, we see them beginning to do just that. Jesus' preaching uh, the gospel in Israel was just the beginning of what would later be a proclamation of the gospel to all people everywhere. And that's what I was talking about, of this sense of handing on the baton, that Jesus began the mission, and we're now to continue it on. This would be that continuation, that, that passing on of the baton. This, is gonna, this would mean persecution for the disciples, as Jesus said in chapter 24, verse 9, that they would be hated by all nations, the same nations that they're, they're to go to. But they were to go because the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations before Jesus comes back. The reality is the gospel is going to be preached to all nations. Some are going to receive it. Some are going to reject it. But God is a just God. Everybody has a chance to hear the gospel and respond to it. He's a just God. And it's going to be a testimony. Imagine that. You've heard the gospel preached to you. You're standing there before God, before God with, with no excuse. And you're going to be confined to hell. You've, you've, been, you've heard the gospel over and over again. And you've continued to reject it. Terrifying. The reality is Jesus wants some of us to go overseas to make disciples. Now, I used to, to read this and think, okay, go therefore and make disciples. That means what it's saying is everybody must go across seas and make disciples of all nations. It's, not, it's, it's more a sense of as you go, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're to be making disciples. And yet, yes, it will mean some traveling overseas. But, but also, it's going, to, it's going to mean right here where we're at. So at school, at college, you're to be actively seeking to share the gospel with others who are going to hell with Jesus. That's the reality, isn't it? That's the bottom line of it, is people are going to hell without Christ. He's the only solution. There's no other way. So we've got the cure and what, what do we do? Do we sit down with it? Do we just you know, talk, talk about it? Or are we going to do something with it? Or we're commanded, we're called to make disciples. So as a Christian, you have exactly what they need, which is a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And discipleship proper happens in, the, in a, I say in a church context, we're all members of, of the church, but it's not, part, and one aspect of it is evangelism, but it doesn't end there. We're not just called to make converts, people who say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to follow Christ, and, and then you leave them to it. Jesus went and he, and he preached the gospel to some people who would have heard the gospel, responded to it, and, and, and gone off. And yet that, that's the, the, the beginning process of discipleship. There's, there's then to be this continued uh, process of maturing, which takes place really in a, in a church context. So not only do they need to hear the gospel, but they need to see it lived out in our life also. Some of us need to repent of where we're at. And I say this, some of us, and I include myself in it. Because our hearts are cold towards God. We hear this command to make disciples, and we're like, yeah, whatever. Amen. It has no effect on us. We need to cry out to God and ask him to soften our hearts, because we would rather watch TV or spend hours playing games, or on Facebook, chatting nonsense, than read our Bible. It's true. Hands up to that. We'd rather sit and gossip about other people instead of praying for them and talking to each other about how good and how faithful and how merciful God is and just how much he's done for us. I was thinking about um, this, the whole 
experience in discipleship for myself and being, being discipled by you know, Pastor Rob, Rich T, um, Pete, so many guys in this, in this church who have discipled me and continue to do that. And what a blessing, a major blessing it's been in my life. And I think I was speaking to Phil yesterday and he, and he was just reflecting on the same thing. Growth, so much growth has happened as we've been discipled ultimately by Christ through each other. I mean, through the, the preaching of the word on a Sunday in, in, in Bible study together as we were accountable to one another, that discipling is taking place and it's, it's so necessary. The reality, what, what was really on my heart, if I'm honest, is, is for all of us, but particularly men within this church, that we would take the responsibility to find one, even if it's one young man within this church, one young person, that we commit to discipling. Now that means, obviously, we're going to have to be a level of maturity for, for ourselves also. But we need to be doing that as men. All of us need to be doing it, but, but, I, but particularly on my heart is, is for, for the men to, be, to, to make an effort to reach out to our young boys who are here, our young, young men, as it were, and come alongside them, commit to praying with them, and studying the scriptures with them, seeing that discipleship take place. So, now let's look at verse 19, which says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This command was followed by the disciples in the early church, as recorded in Acts 2.38, where Peter commands, Repent and be baptized. And in 8.12, which records, But when they believed Philip, as he, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So if Jesus was intending to communicate that this was now to be a formula for baptism, that it was when people are baptized, they must be baptized, mentioned in all three names, there's some magical thing that happens in, in, in those three things, then we see that happening in the book of Acts, whereas we actually see is a recording of in Jesus' name. And it's interesting because, as I said, as I mentioned before, the Trinity is mentioned here. There's no, there's no Jesus, there's no Son without the Father and without the Spirit. We serve a triune God, three persons in one. We don't serve three different gods, they're three persons in one, a triune God. And we're to be immersed into every aspect of that. We're to not only know that for ourselves, but also in the preaching and telling others about Christ, showing them, you know what, you're coming to a relationship with a triune God. Distinct and yet completely united. So once a person has repented and put their faith in Christ, they are to then get baptized as an outward symbol of their union with Christ in his death and burial as they go down and then coming up to resurrection unto new life. That's, that's to be a standard practice. Anybody who receives Christ and then there's, there's not that desire to be baptized, I would say that there's a serious issue there. I mean, because it's, it's something that, that we're called to do, commanded to do. So we're to be encouraging others. They, they come to Christ, not only that, they're, they're to now get baptized. Baptism brings a person into an existence that is fundamentally ruled by the Trinity. So the next aspect of discipleship is in verse 20. Are you all still with me? You're a bit quiet. Teaching them to observe. It's funny because in, in Jamaica, in Jamaica they, people just start, you, you might be, be teaching or preaching and people just stand up and start having a conversation with you. So. I'm not asking you to do that here. It's, the next aspect of discipleship in verse 20 is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now Jesus taught his disciples how to live in the kingdom. 
invested time by way of instruction and example, didn't he? He didn't just teach them, but he, he lived with them. He lived out the very things that he was talking about. That's the aspect of, of discipleship. Really, that I desire to see happening here as well, that we'd be in one another's lives to the point where we're accountable to one another, we're instructing one another in the things of God. But in order to do that, we need to care, don't we? And we really need to ask the Lord to, to give us that heart to see people mature in their faith, to see them disciple, not just become converts and then leave them to it. So here are, here are just three things taught by Jesus and Matthew amongst the, the, the plethora of things. One, make the kingdom of God a priority. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Second thing, Jesus is the king, king of God's kingdom. Matthew 16.15-17, he said to them, But... Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, meaning the anointed king, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And thirdly, to follow Jesus means great commitment and sacrifice. Oh, we wish that it didn't, but it does. And Jesus, as I said, has, has set that example, and you see that throughout scripture. Suffering first for glory later. Humble yourself now. You will be exalted in due, in due time, in God's time. But there's going to be pain and there's going to be suffering. That's the, when we like to talk about the promises of God, that's, that's the promise that we're going to suffer as believers. Making disciples involves teaching, which is a means by which disciples of Christ are being transformed to, be, to become more like Jesus, which is the chief aim of discipleship. Romans 8.29 all my Calvinist brothers get excited now. It says, those, who, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he may be firstborn among many brothers. This is a gigantic passage, which we can't unpack fully now, but I mention it because it confirms that disciples of Jesus will become like Christ and that they're predestined to do that. But that's for another, for another day. Uh, Back in the day, I used to like watching kung fu films. Most of them had a very similar plot, mm-hmm. which, which usually involved a student or disciple wanting to take revenge for the murder of his teacher. The bad guy would be a master of some particular fighting style called brilliant names like Iron Fist or Drunken Monkey or Eagle's Claw. So the young student or disciple would search out a guy who was a master of the only style that could beat these other styles. It could be a fusion of styles, maybe, like drunken monkey with an iron fist. Anyway, the young disciple's mission would be to get the master to teach him everything that he knew so that he could take revenge. That's not our desire. I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to take revenge, but we're, the desire of both teacher and student would be to make a disciple just like the master. And that's what Romans 8 is talking about, the fact that we're, we're being conformed into his likeness. And we're... As we're becoming like him, we're also to make disciples who desire to become like him. And the amazing thing is, he, it's not that we're making our own little disciples. They're, 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 they're disciples that, that belong to Christ. We're passing on what he's taught us. So the application for us, first of all, we need to know what Jesus commanded, don't we? How can we teach it if we don't know it? We do this by reading the Bible, simply, personally for ourselves, but also in groups Maybe after a service on a Sunday or in a midweek Bible study, you might be a parent with young ones and so you can't get out to the midweek meetings. What do you do? You praise God for the young disciples that he's given you for your children. 
You pray together and have family devotions. You make it a priority in your home to read the word of God together and study the word of God and listen to teaching that's going to build you up. What you learn, you pass on to your young disciples. You switch off the TV. Will. Will's never had a television. So blessed. You switch off the TV. Yes, it can be done. And sit down and have meals together and talk to each other. In the Old Testament, God's people were to teach God's law to their children. In Deuteronomy 6, 7, it says, You should teach them diligently, that is God's laws, to your children, and should talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. That's a bit over the top, I hear some of you say. Well, only if you miss out the verse that came before it, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. See, we've really missed it, haven't we? If, if, we're, if we've come to Christ, we've been saved, we now belong to him, we've been bought with his precious blood, and yet we're still trying to live our own life. We've still got our own plans and our own desires, which are worldly desires. We've missed it, if that's the case. Now, you may be thinking, far from being a great commission, this sounds more like, a, like Mission Impossible. And you'd be right, it is. Except that one except that the one who calls us to do it has all authority. But that's not all, which brings me to my third and final point. Am I doing for time, Brian? Cool, okay. Which is Jesus will be with us always. Jesus will be with us always. Verse 20 says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. What an amazing comfort and assurance for the disciples. They stand before the risen Christ who was dead and is now alive. Who has authority over everything, including their destiny. And that's the same for us today, isn't it? They are given an impossible task by the one who makes all things possible. But not only that, to be sent by the one who has all authority is one thing. To know that he will be with them until the end of the age gives the disciples all the assurance that they need. And that's the same for us today. We're called to make disciples but that's sandwiched in between the fact that, okay, he's got all authority. That means I need to obey Jesus. But also it means that wherever I, as, as I step out, I need to trust that he has all power. So as I, as I begin to evangelize, terrified, he's going to be with me. Now, the person may not respond in the way that I'd like them to respond, but that's not the point. We're to be faithful in desiring to make disciples, praying for other people, reaching out with the gospel. We need to know the gospel for ourselves, don't we? And to preach it to ourselves regularly. So as I said, they're given an impossible task. But evidence for, for this, for the fact that they, they put it into practice, can be found in the book of Acts, where you find the disciples obeying the Great Commission in the authority and the presence of Jesus. Evidence can also be seen as you look around the room. At those who have heard the gospel and have been baptized and have been taught all that Jesus commanded. As you look around and we see other believers, we can see the Great Commission has been and continues to be fulfilled, but it doesn't just end with us. We're to continue. We're now to pass that baton on. Jesus wants us to be assured today that He has absolute authority, and that in that authority, He commands that we take what we have, what we've learned from Him, and tell others, whether it's in our homes, across the road, or in another country, in Tesco's at a bus stop. In Tesco's, at a bus stop, at college, or in Bible study, wherever we are, and however much we know. 
So it's not a case of, I need to know so much of the Bible before I can begin to make disciples. I, I want to make disciples, but I'm going to wait until I'm at a certain stage. No, because you're just a link in the chain, as it were. So let's say you go out and you, you share the gospel with somebody. Let's, let's say the Lord blesses it, the Lord's gone ahead, and they actually give their life to Christ. Maybe with you or maybe with somebody else. Then what happens? You're, you're, they're, they're then encouraged to, to be baptized and become part of a, of a local body they, and where they come and they're going to hear the word being taught. They're going to be edified. But also here within church, as I said, we've got a role to play with regards to discipleship. We're to be learning the scriptures for ourselves and then passing on what it is we've learned. We have a desire to see each other built up to become more and more like him. So the end of the age refers to the second coming of Jesus. And yes, he's coming back. That's a, that's a, we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back for his church. We're part of his kingdom and we're to, to make others a part of his kingdom. He does the work by his spirit. We can't save anybody. But we've got, we've got a job to do. Matthew's gospel begins with Jesus, Jesus' birth as Emmanuel, you remember, which is, which is what? God with us. Right at the beginning of, of Matthew's gospel. And it ends with the resurrected Jesus who is still God with us. The commission of Jesus is a high and lofty calling and would have been an overwhelming task but for his complete authority and his promised presence. Jesus commands disciple making in his authority and with his presence. You join me as we pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this great commission. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have in being a part of it, Lord. That we're to take the baton, Lord, and to pass it on to others, Lord. We're to be part of this disciple-making process. All of us, Lord, who, who claim to be your children, none of us are exempt. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of that. As I said, Lord, I pray, Lord, would you please... Give us a revelation, Lord, of what a privilege it is because the, the, the truth is, Lord, mostly we don't really see that. We don't really experience that. It's hard. It's difficult. We're afraid. We're ashamed. But, Lord, we thank you for the reminder in your scripture, Lord, that you have been given all authority and it's with that authority that we step out. Not our own, Lord, but yours. And not only that, you're going to be with us Nothing greater. There's no greater, greater promise than that, Lord, that, that, that you would be with us. So as we step out and, and make disciples, Lord, as we invest in becoming um, disciples ourselves, Lord, you're going to be with us. As we're persecuted, Lord, even for sharing the gospel, as, as others sneer at us and laugh at us, Lord, we need not worry because you're with us. And Lord, to the end of the age until you come back and then you're going to be with us for eternity. So Lord, I pray for any of you here this morning, Lord, who are not, who feel that this is not for them, Lord, who feel that they're um, exempt from this, Lord, I pray that you would convict them as you've been convicting me, Lord. Lord, would you work on our hearts, Lord, would you grant us, Lord, the ability to love others enough to share the gospel this great treasure that we have. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.